Hi listeners, this is Molt, a series of conversations about the ways that death and dying touch our lives. I'm Ashlyn, and I hope what you hear sparks new ideas about death in today's world. Today I'm talking to my friend Luke Warford. I met Luke at work in Washington, D.C. in 2016 and have stayed in touch with him over the years as he's hopped around the planet. Luke is nonstop and a social butterfly. He's built an incredible career working for former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright's firm at Facebook and on multiple political campaigns. But Luke also has an inner world that is just as inspiring, and that's the place where I originally connected with him. Luke lost both of his parents in a short span of time. And in these years that have followed, he's kept going and literally running toward life. Luke has a lot to say on his experience of loss, loss in today's society, loss at his age. So let's begin. Luke, I want to start by giving you the space to share a bit about yourself and the losses that you've experienced. Thanks, Ashlyn. So... Uh, as you said, my name's Luke Warford. I currently live in, in Austin, Texas. And I, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, I'm 31 years old and my the second half of my 20s was just characterized by a lot of um, people who were super close to me in my life dying over a short period of time. So my mom was first diagnosed with breast cancer, I think, when I was 11 or 12. And had, went through treatment, went through chemo, you know, lost her hair, had a double mastectomy, and then was, you know, fine for a decade. And then over about, I guess I was living in London at the time in grad school, um, and my mom had been like losing a lot of weight, and we came back for uh, Christmas and found out, I guess I was 22, so we found out two days before Christmas, basically, that she her cancer had come back, that it had metastasized around her stomach. And then she was on uh, clinical trials for, you know, four and a half years after that, which was just like a roller coaster of like, oh, this this treatment works for a while. Now it stopped working. This other treatment works for a while. Now it stopped working. Um, and then she, you know, she eventually, after four and a half years, passed away. Um, actually, she, uh, you know, she loved the planet and loved being outdoors and it passed away on Earth Day, April 22nd, back in 2016. Later that, so something that's missing from your intro and that I didn't talk about as much is that her father, my grandfather, Frank, was, um, I was super close with as well. And he then you know, not as young as my mom, but then he passed away that December. And then 12 months later, um, my dad, who who was like recovering from losing his wife and his father-in-law and was exercising and trying to figure out how to like rebuild his life, just had a like pretty, didn't have a heart attack, but had a pretty unexpected heart failure and passed away uh, in January, 2018. So that over the course of like a, a little less than 21 months, um, three, you know, three super important people in my life died. And it is, I don't know. I think I'm sure I, that, you know, that was oh, three years ago, almost, uh, that my dad passed away. And I'm sure I haven't 
I'm still processing. I think I'll be processing forever. I certainly haven't finished. I don't know. I guess you don't really finish processing. But yeah, I, I just, I think a lot about, about grief and loss and, um, you know, excited to talk to you today. I think it's something we're not really good at handling in our society, despite the fact that everyone deals with it all the time. And I think these issues are like particularly important now, just given what, you know, 200,000 and, you know, almost 300,000 people have died from COVID. And so it's more, there's more and more and more people in the, in the country and in the world that are experiencing this every day. Right. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, Luke. I think, you know, having known you through um, at least part of that period of your life, I have always been struck by your openness in sharing this. And I, I, I share your perspective that it's important to, to talk about these things. And so I really appreciate that. Moving in a chronological way, although I recognize that there's nothing orderly about the experience of time when grief is involved, can you tell us about the period of time leading up to the loss of your mom and how, how did you face or prepare for the possibility of losing her? Oh man. Yeah, it was terrible. Uh, I think we, so my mom passed away in April and I sort of, I think like, Oh yeah. There was, so there was a Thanksgiving. We all went to Thanksgiving, um, the Thanksgiving before. So in uh, November, 2015 and a bunch of the family was together. My, my grandfather, my cousins, my aunt, uncle. Um, and I think there was like it, it, my mom at the time with the treatment she was undergoing, she would have days where she felt okay and had energy and could talk to people and, and days where she like just couldn't even get out of bed. And I remember Thanksgiving being a good day and like, it still, you know, is probably one of the most, in a weird way, one of the best days of my life, for sure. Like we were all together, we had fun. My, it was like such a gift that my mom felt okay. But I think like there was this sense that it was her last Thanksgiving. Like we all kind of knew, I think. And I had just started a job in, in DC uh, and you know, I think I said to my boss, started a job like early January. And I was like, just want you guys to know my, my mom's going to die this year and I'm going to be fucked up for a little bit. And uh, hope you do. Hope you're okay with that. And then I don't know. I just tried to, I tried to go home as much as I could. I tried to see her um, as, as much as I could, but also there was this sense that she like, didn't she was excited for me and my life and the life I had built in DC and fortunately it was uh you know an hour-long flight to go see her and so I like went home a bunch but you know also tried to figure out a way to continue to live my life right because you, you can't necessarily put pause everything uh even if it was something I was thinking about constantly right yeah that makes a lot of sense and having not lost my parents but being constant, constantly very conscious of that. I, I think about that too. How do you balance the realization that time is limited with the people that you love, um, but not kind of let that paralyze you in your own life? Yeah. I mean, there was this, there was this point I had gotten a, a fellowship, like to go work in Ethiopia for a year at one point during my mom, when my mom was sick. 
And it was probably like a year into her, her treatment. So, uh, or maybe two years into her treatment, but like she, she wasn't, you know, she was still doing relatively okay. Like we had this very real concrete conversation. I mean, my mom is incredible. Right. But like, we literally were like, okay, well, Luke, you can't pause your life until your mom dies. Like you can't not do anything. Right. Like, cause it was like, oh, I don't want to be in Ethiopia. I don't want to be so far away. And my mom, like, you know, is so generous and selfless and like, well, all she wanted was like for me to be happy and successful. And she was like, of course, you're going to go do this thing. You can't, you can't not go do this thing because of me. That'd be crazy. But that's hard, right? There's like a sense of guilt about, you know, every decision you make that's for yourself, that's not putting those people first. But like, you can't, you can't also destroy yourself in a, in an attempt to, um, you know, be there for, for your family, or especially like in the case of my parents, I don't think that's what they would have wanted. One of the things that I'm always interested in, and um, especially the role that it plays in grief are rituals and traditions. I was wondering if you could share in the immediate aftermath of your mom's or or your dad's death, um, who, who was your immediate community and what what kinds of practices or rituals did you find solace in? <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, and my first thought was like running and drinking, but those are not, <laughs> those are not rituals. <laughs> they can't um, be. Yeah, in, in some ways. I, you know, I just remember after my dad died. So there was this like crazy sort of thing that happened after my dad died, which was like, you know, when my mom passed away, there were still like my grandfather was around, my dad was around, like my brother and I were like allowed to be kids about it a little bit, right? My dad, you know, we were all obviously there supporting my dad, but it was like, we weren't like ultimately in charge. And there was this like moment when my dad died where my brother and I looked at each other and we're just like, fuck, we're the adults now. Like what the, this is terrible, you know, this is terrible. There's no one else. There's no one else to lean on. There's, I mean, there are obviously people, lots of people to lean on, but like there's, it's sort of on us, right? And, you know, I'm super fortunate. And like, we went, we went back to Rhode Island. Um, we, my dad passed away in Florida and we were, we were there with him. And, um, but then we went back to Rhode Island and just like a bunch of my friends and my brother's friends just like descended on Rhode Island and were around for, you know, like to, to celebrate and support and hold us and be there for us. Because like, that's, I don't know, in a lot of ways, that's just the best thing you can do is just like be there for each other. And, you know, so that's, that's really what I leaned on in the immediate days after, after my dad passed away. And it was like, we would, you know, we sat around the house and listened to their old records. And uh, my, da- my dad owned a, a CD store, a music store for a long time. Um, and listened to just like a bunch of my parents' old music. And that was like sort of how we celebrated them. Mm, that's really special. Yeah. It was fun. I mean, it was fun. I like the, I don't know if it was the night of his funeral or I think it was probably the night of his funeral. We had like a raucous, dance party in my living room with like a bunch of my friends jumping up and down and like I thought we were going to break the floor in because we were just like all dancing around to my parents old old music which is pretty fun I think it was 
a, a catharsis a lot of us needed. I bet. I think so building on some of the things you mentioned and just what's involved in um, the preparation for somebody that you love dying or kind of the aftermath and some of the logistics about it. I remember you sharing a bit about the nonprofit you got involved with Lori's Hands um, and wondering if you could share what that work meant to you and how, how you started to appreciate the, the work that they were doing ba based on your experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Lori's Hands is this incredible nonprofit that friend and classmate of mine uh, from college, Sarah, started um, in honor of her mom who had, who had passed away from, from cancer years before. And the, the basic model is pretty simple, which is just that they get college students to volunteer in the homes of uh, or doing like basic tasks for people who are dealing with chronic illnesses because um, and it's kind of it's, it's great, right? Like a lot of the uh, it's good for the people who are experiencing chronic illness or, or loss because they get support from somebody who can do their yard work or go to the grocery store for them or, or whatever. But it's also good for the, the students as well, because like with a lot of the, the students that participate, they are, uh, you know, nursing majors or want to work with patients. And this is like early expo earlier exposure they can get in their education than like they might be able to uh, in a hospital or something where sometimes that's only in a master's program or later in a nursing program. I mean, the general idea, right, is that like, and actually this goes back to the first time my mom was sick, which was like her community, our community just showed up in this like incredible way, right? Like her friends had a list of who was going to make us dinner every night and people would come over and clean and they would do yard work. And we just like really were held up by the community that her and my dad had built. And particularly that, that stands out to me that first time that my mom was sick. And it just like, it's so important, right? And it's also just such a privilege because I think, you know, a lot of people don't have that. And so the idea, and like, you know, even as I'm saying this to you now, right? Like building a community that's that strong, that's that supportive feels very like, you know, I live in a big city. I've lived in a bunch of big cities. It feels very small town in some ways, right? It feels very like, you know, I think some of the community ties that maybe we used to have, uh, have eroded a little bit with, uh, you know, social media and division. And, but also like, obviously I'm just colored by my own experience, which is I'm currently living in a city. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, Lori, I, 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 you know, I, I digress, but Lori's hands basically is incredible because they provide that community support to people who maybe aren't as fortunate or aren't as surrounded by, by folks who can. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. I, I worry about similar things and have always been interested in Lori's hands and the way you've talked about it because it is, you know, a lot of communities are disintegrating in a lot of ways, whether it's in an urban area or not. My sister has done some work in the, the home aid space and the stories that she tells me about 
people who can only afford to have somebody come visit them once every 24 hours and, and don't have family left. And, you know, it, it's not good from many perspectives. It's not good for the person that's that's dying or experiencing a chronic illness. And it's not great for the workers who are, you know, underpaid and underappreciated. It seems like there's so much work that has to be done to increase awareness of this. But also the, the model of Lori's hands is something that could be done in so many places. There are, you know, universities in many towns and building those models seems like a relatively simple thing to do, but I, I'm not really sure what the barrier is, but I'm really glad that you were a part of that and, and that your mom was part of such a strong community that came together. Cause I think that's, you know, that's the way it should be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think I agree with you. I want Lori's hands to be everywhere. I want them to be in every state and every community um, because I, I do definitely think there's a need there. And, you know, as, as you were saying, right, it's like only, it's only getting, you know, as people move around more, as there's more economic instability and people, you know, move communities, move for jobs, just like this sort of percent of the population that's growing up in and living in the same, or that's living in the same town they grew up in and that their parents grew up in, that their grandparents is just getting less and less. And so, and especially, I mean, oh my gosh, like the impact of the coronavirus on community building and community development, like I have lived, there's basically the pandemic's been going on the entire time I've been in Austin. And it's like, how the heck do you build a community in a, in a place and a time when you can't really see people, you can't meet, no, no one's letting new folks into their, into their orbit or not that, you know, not many people are. And uh, it's just, it's, it's hard. It's really, it's really hard. And those, those communities are so important, but then the, the practicality of actually building one is, is really, you know, there's a lot of barriers there. That's so true. I, I, I hope that a lot of people are reflecting on the role of community and reimagining how it can be done in this time. But like you said, even if we're building up those ideas in our head, there's, it's, it's not very possible to execute them right now. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, in the years ahead, as we come out of this and rebuild, how, how those ideas that people are maybe accumulating um, about what their social needs are, what their community needs are, maybe we'll see some of that build up. So I know this is another thing that we've talked about before and you alluded to in a conversation we were just having recent, recently, but reflecting on the losses of both of your parents, what has been helpful or harmful to you in that grieving process? And what have you learned in terms of what people really need when they experience loss? Yeah. Uh, there's, <laughs> there's a lot there. Yeah. Feel free to, I'll, I'll ramble for a bit, but feel free to, to ask some or interrupt or ask clarifying questions. What have I learned? And well, I mean, sorry, I think there's a few things, right? Like one is that everybody needs different stuff, right? Like I can speak to my own experience and what was helpful for me and and all that, but like different people, everyone grieves in their own way. Everyone sort of like knows or doesn't know, but is like 
navigating that path themselves. And that that's like one of the things that makes it so hard and, and makes it hard, frankly, for, for people's peers to support people to support their peers. Um, I think there's, you know, I sort of think about, I know there's the 12 stages of grief or whatever, but at least within the terms of like what uh, my experience, I actually just kind of think about it in terms of like two stages, right? And it and they're not they're not emotional stages. They're like actual what is required of you in life stages, right? Right. And so in the sort of immediate aftermath of somebody dying, in the um, few weeks thereafter, it's a lot of logistics, a lot of like, you're just trying to get through. It's terrible. Funeral planning is terrible. It's amazing to have people come in and talk to you and tell you about how much the, you're, you're, you're the person you lost meant to them. But the reality is, is that all just like ends up kind of like a blur. Right. And the, and so the goal there is just to survive, just to survive, just to make it through. And then I think like, you know, it's not necessarily just that that period's two weeks, sometimes it's longer, sometimes it's shorter, but there's this like after period, which a lot of folks have written about where, you know, at some point everyone leaves, right? They go back to my, you know, my aunt and uncle went back to Connecticut or Colorado. My, my friends went back to their jobs. Maybe they stayed with me and, and hugged me for a week or two weeks or however long, but eventually everyone goes back, right? And there's this deafening silence. And that is where the, I don't know, that that is where certainly the first few weeks are hard in a lot of ways, but like that is where the like loneliness starts to creep in. The I think for a lot of people where depression starts to creep in. And then like there's the, that, you know, turns into this years long process of, uh, of how do you process your grief? What stage of grief are you in? What are you doing to deal with it? How are you coping? How are you getting back to real life? Like there's all these things, but I really sort of like think about it and, and in terms of those two stages and like people need very different things, right? Like when I'm in immediate funeral planning survival mode, I don't want to make any decisions. I'm totally overwhelmed by decision-making I just want like, like doing like really practical stuff is incredibly helpful. So I remember my buddy, Steve, like showed up at my parents' house um, or, you know, it was my house, I guess then, and just walked in and like immediately started just making, like heating up food for everybody and just like taking care of everyone and just like taking action, doing stuff, taking off, off the burden, uh, doing anything you can to take the burden off of somebody who's, who's grieving is really helpful. Then in, like as you transition, and again, I could like talk about either of these things forever, but as you transition back into the to normalcy, there's this like huge chasm between what like, you sort of think everybody forgets, right? You, you, they, because you know, your friend goes back to work and they're not asking you every five minutes about your dad. That doesn't mean they forgot, but it, but experientially, you're still thinking about it all the time. And it seems like the world has gone back to itself. And so even just like checking in, like things like, how are you today? Like asking friends, like, how are you today? Or, ask, or asking your, your person, like, how are you today? Or um, just want to let you know, I'm thinking about you. Like, 
stuff like that to, to make, or like, oh, I was thinking about your, your dad, or I was thinking about whatever, like those things can be incredibly um, helpful and, and valuable. But I mean, I think to tie it all up in a bow to answer your question, one of the things I've learned is that just like everyone's doing their best, but people really don't know how to talk to each other about this stuff, how to support each other. Again, we're all doing our best, but we're not literate in, in grief and loss in the United States. We're not good at talking about it. And a lot of times what people just do is they say nothing because it's hard. They don't know what to say. So they say nothing. And then that reinforces the sort of isolation and loneliness of the person who's grieving. And so I just think there's like a huge, there's a huge opportunity. And I'm so grateful to you, Ashlyn, for the work you're doing here, just because, you know, it's something we need to, we need to talk about more. We should be talking about more. It, it, it would be for the benefit of, uh, you know, everyone and loss and is something everybody experiences uh, if we were better at, at dealing with this as a society. Yeah. Well, thanks for all of that. And I know it's hard to tie that up into a bow, um, but it, you know, it reminds me, I, I was watching a documentary called Speaking Grief and they have this scene where people are in a grocery store and they all have on their shirt people that they've lost and the people are, you know, moving through this grocery store and they show, you know, they see somebody in their loss as if they're able to recognize it. And, you know, a lot of times they, they turn away or they go to the next aisle because they don't know what to say. And part of that is, like you said, it is such a unique experience every time. And so there is no one answer, but also we just, as especially in American society, I just don't think there is much space for this. Um, and so again, this is, uh, uh, I'm really happy to be having this conversation with you. I have just a, a couple more questions and one is still related to, is related to what we were just yeah. speaking about, but I wanted to ask you about what are called secondary losses or milestones in your life where you expected to experience those with your parents, or maybe you haven't experienced those milestones yet, but wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, some of those experiences. I know I mentioned in the introduction about how, how much running has played a role in your own personal grieving process and how you ran a marathon in memory of your parents. Um, so wondering if you could speak a little bit about that and how you think about upcoming milestones even. Yeah. Yeah. And I, of course, that's a great, great question. And but just before we get to that on the, the last point about, you know, a lot of people say nothing because they're afraid of, of saying the wrong thing. And I think that that's valid because like a lot of people, I mean, we, we do, I don't want to minimize that we need to teach people about how to communicate about this stuff because you can say the wrong thing, right? Like that is right. a, a, a a hundred people would text me, Hey, think, let me know what you need. And it's like, no, I'm like, that puts the burden on me. Like, I'm not going to think about what I need and then communicate it to you. Like that's literally too much. That's asking too much in that moment. That is too much. And a lot of other moments it's not, but at that moment it is. And so I don't, there's just an opportunity to learn and to think about what, what to say and how to communicate because like you can say the wrong thing, right? And I and and so like people's fears about being worried about saying the wrong thing are, are valid. 
And the, the example, the example I always use, right. Is I, I we're at my dad's funeral and it's like, there's, you know, we're in the receiving line, right. I'm in the same, same funeral hall that my, where we we'd, we'd had my mom's ceremony, like, uh, you know, 21 months earlier. And there's a line of a couple hundred people coming through and I'm the, I'm the first person in line for my family. And, um, you know, most people come through the, the funeral line and they say, Hey, like what, you know, I'm so-and-so I loved your dad. I, you know, I knew him in this way, even if they think I would know who they are, like people are, are pretty good about introducing themselves and giving you context and just, you know, briefly saying, Hey, I'm so sorry for your loss, or I'm thinking about you, or here's a little anecdote of something I loved about your, 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 your loved one. And I'm in line and this woman I've never seen in my life before. And her husband, uh, they're probably in their, their early seventies walk up to me and the woman is sobbing. And she just looks at me and goes like, puts her hand on my shoulder and goes, Oh my gosh, what happened? Mm. And I just like choked on the water I was drinking or just on nothing. Mm. And it was like, I, you know, I answered graciously, right? I was like, well, you know, his heart failed. We don't really know, but that was just an incredibly, she was so well-intentioned. I know she was upset. I know, I know like, like the, I can have so much empathy and compassion for her in a lot of moments. And even now talking about this, about like, she, you know, didn't know what to say that just came out. It's okay. But there's so much wrong with that. Right. There's so much wrong with that statement. Right. Number one, like, who are you? Right. Like just who are you? I have no idea who you are. Number two, like asking there, I'm the wrong person to ask that question to. If you want to know what happened, there's literally hundreds of people at this event who would be more appropriate to ask it to than me. And then I think the third thing is just like, you literally are forcing me in that moment, in the moment where I am barely holding it together to relive, to like it go into detail about my father's death with you. Like it was just, I don't know, really not the right thing to say. And, and like, right. And, you know, we, I don't want to get into right and wrong and the idea that there's a the right thing to say, cause there obviously isn't a right thing to say, but, but that was harm. That was hurtful. That was a hurtful, like, and that certainly wasn't her intention, but we really just are, need to be so much better, could be so much better um, than we are in talking about and dealing with these issues. Okay, to your, to your question about milestones, the times where, like, I mean, even like, I'm a little choked up right now thinking about this, but thinking about, you know, going to other people's weddings, thinking about, like, I'm not married yet, thinking about getting married without my parents there, thinking about trying to, my mom was an early childhood ed professor. She ran a preschool, she was great with little kids thinking about my dad was like so kind and gentle and they would have been amazing incredible grandparents thinking about like getting married or trying to raise kids or doing all of those things without them is really sad as sad it's really hard and it doesn't make me not want to do those things I don't think although the prospect of raising kids is definitely scarier without them around 
you know, and and I guess in a in a in a world where like I know what it's like to lose people you love a lot. Yeah. But it's I mean it sucks, right? Like those those major milestones, those events are are marked by like by the presence of the people in a lot of ways we mark those events by the presence of the people who matter the most to you. And, you know, you, you were talking about a marathon before and I, I, people, people talk all the time. They're like, Oh, I, you know, I lost my mom, my sister, my, my friend, my, my, my spouse. And they're like, I think about them all day, every day. I think, I think about them all the time. Years later, they're like, I think about them all, all this, all the time. I, I think that like, I don't, I don't, I, I definitely go through entire days without thinking about my parents sometimes. Right. Like that. I, I don't know. And I, there's like this taboo about our guilt, like guilt. I feel about that, but the times where I do, but I also think you're just like in your life, you're do, going about your day-to-day business, like things you're taking a shower, you're at work, you're, going on a run, like doing all these normal life things that like my parents, you know, in a, if they were still alive would just be in Rhode Island and I might not interact with them on it, on it for a day. So, but the, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that like, it is when you have these big milestones, these big things, these wins that you want to tell them about, right? Like, or, or struggles, right? All I want to do, like I had been training for a long time to try and hit a certain marathon time and I hit it and I felt so excited and was, you know, you were, you talked about how energetic I am before. There's like photos of me scream, like yelling at the top of my lungs, like so fired up about, about running this race. But like immediately thereafter, all I wanted to do was call my, my mom. Right. And I couldn't. And you know, it's nice to, I, we, I was in Oregon, there was, we were in the, in the, the race finished, like in the middle of these beautiful pine trees. And I remember sort of like looking up and, or like looking around and being like, okay, this is a beautiful place. My mom would love this, but it's not the same, right? It's just not the same as being able to pick up the phone. And yeah, those things are hard. Yeah. Yeah, undoubtedly. And um, I, I asked the question knowing that there really is no other answer except that they are incredibly hard, but uh, also asking it more to, to make that part of the conversation. And, and I, I'm trying personally to be more aware of that with other people that I know who have lost others to not see it as an episodic event, but something that reappears in their life and that never really leaves them in like you said even if you know you don't think about the people that you've lost on a daily basis there are those those times and and we all collectively i think know what a lot of those milestones are in people's lives and we're we're able to decipher when you know those experiences are going to bring up past losses and you know, I think we can, we can do better in that regard as well. And not thinking about loss as something that is in the past and you get further and further away from as time moves on. Well, yeah, I think that's right. And I think that there's like, you know, I say, I don't think about them every day, 
but it's it's wild because the the flip side of that is that there are like constant like events days milestones like so i think you're talking about milestones in terms of like my life right but there are also just like milestones that where they would have been a part of my life so people always talk about how holidays are hard but then i mean the beginning of the year is hard. The middle of like, like, you know, my dad died in January. So there's the anniversary of his death. My mom died in April. So there's the anniversary of her death. My mom's birthday was in May. So there's the anniversary there. My dad, you know, Mother's Day is in May. Father's Day is in June. My dad's birthday is in June. My parents' anniversary is in August. Thanksgiving's in November. Christmas, like Christmas and, and Hanukkah are in December. There's just all these things where it's like, oh my God, I would have been calling them or sending them a present or doing something nice for them or whatever. Um, or for me, right? My birthdays and all, I didn't even think about that. But like, they're just, they're just, there's constant triggers. There's constant reminders, right? And, you know, I've something really practical for, for your listeners that, you know, if you want to be sweet to somebody, after my mom died, the, the 20, she died on the 22nd, uh, which I think I said earlier, but then the 22nd of every month was a trigger, right? I was like, oh, it's one, been one month. Oh, it's been two months. Oh, it's been three months. Like, oh God, it was terrible. And something one of my friends did is they set a calendar reminder on their phone to text me on the 22nd of every month. Hmm. And they did that for a year. And it was really nice because, you know, seven months after my mom died on November 22nd, nobody's asking me like, hey, you know, how are you feeling about this or checking in? And she was. And, you know, that's a thing we can all do, right? Like you could literally, if your friend's parent has died or your friend's spouse or whatever, you figure out what the date, the date is. And literally you could set a reminder on your phone with Siri. It would take 30 seconds. You could all do it right now feel free to pause the podcast for a second or the, the audio for a second and do that. But like, that's just a really practical thing that, that honestly just means a lot, right? Like remembering those dates, thinking about like, not just the, you know, Christmas and, and, and uh, new year, I meant Christmas and, and Thanksgiving and, uh, and my birthday are obvious one and like birthdays are obvious ones, but like, you know, you're, you're, you're the person who's died, like their birthday or the anniversary of it or all this stuff. And, you know, there's just, there's a lot of little stuff like that that you can do to be there for each other that I think um, can make the passing of those milestones happy, right? That can make you feel, the person feel loved and cared for. And it's like such an opportunity for showing someone you care about them in a really meaningful, really personal, really important way on, on a day that's going to be hard regardless. And I think we, we should all just take advantage of those. Yeah. Yeah. That's really useful, practical advice. I have an aunt who, and, and not to say this is how everybody is, because, you know, my dad is kind of the opposite with the losses he's experienced, but my aunt remembers the death dates of people forever no matter how many years go on whether it's her parents or children you know it's it's how it's it's sort of the calendar of her life and how she understands the passing of time um so that's yeah that's really interesting to hear and i'm glad that you had that friend who who did that for you yeah that's really that's really cool that's a wild that's a wild thing to remember so effectively yeah i want to close with just one question and you can take this however you want. 
Um, but I, I wanted to just give you an opportunity to honor your parents in, in this conversation and ask how do you remember them or, or what specific memories do you find yourself going back to? Ooh, wow. So on the, I mean, the memories piece is wild because, um, and I think this is true and, and not something that people talk about all the time, but there's this really unfortunate thing where your last memories of someone are the ones that you always go back to, right? And in both of my parents' cases, that's like, each of them on their deathbeds and that's terrible that's not how I want you know that's not how I want to remember I mean it's not terrible it's their real experiences of them right they're you know I'm, I'm any that was part of my experience with them but it's not necessarily how I want to remember them or like the, the, those aren't those weren't the joyous times but the reality is like when I'm, you know, having trouble falling asleep or, or thinking about this a lot, like a lot of the, a lot of what comes up are like the images of them in the last moments of their life, of them being alive, which is really hard and unfortunate. The way I, you know, just, I was thinking about this now and the, the, I'll t just tell you about two images I have of each of them that come to mind. Right. Um, that, that just, as you're asking the question that are, are different from, from, uh, those ones, uh, that are happier, I guess, from the ones I just talked about. The first is with my mom. And, uh, so my mom was a, uh, early childhood, childhood education professor. As I said, she ran a preschool and she loved little kids. She loved, she loved talking to them, teaching them stuff, uh, communicating with them and, and their families and, and college teaching college students how to interact with them and all this, this stuff. But I just remember um, I have this like amazing image of my mom when she would talk to, to young children, like three and four year olds they are obviously like very short. Right. And she would, she would squat down to be at eye level with them. And I remember, I have this like, you know, I mean, she did it so many times. I'd saw her do it so many times, but I have this like particular image of her from the school she used to run, um, the Child Development Center at the University of Rhode Island, just talking to a child and like looking directly at them, communicating with them, like almost not like treating them like an adult, but like she had this way of like communicating, like making everyone be seen and not, not talk down to, just like talk to as an equal. And she was like, would do that the way that she would do that, like both in her face and her body language, but like she literally was putting her body at the same level as these kids it was just awesome and incredible. And like, I don't know, it makes me really happy to think about because like that was her, you know, there were a lot of places that were her happy place, but that was like such a special, a special thing for her. And then with my dad, I'm thinking about, he was, my dad was definitely more introverted than my mom, but like really thoughtful and a really good listener and asked really good questions and also just like cared, right? Like put in effort, like social relationships did not always come easy to him, but he like put in effort when he like, when they mattered. And I have like a few images of like the way he would stand, like he'd, he'd sort of like uh, you know, one, one leg sort of like out first, like pushing out for support, facing someone directly, but like not shoulders squared to them necessarily his head like cocked down a little bit. And the way that he would, like, I remember watching him communicate with like 
female friends of mine in particular, right? Like either, whether it was my girlfriend or just like one of the, the um, amazing women that I, you know, grew up with and, and am still friends with to this day, his, the way that he would, his body language, the way that he would ask questions and like be present in those conversations and really be like putting effort into those, have talking to those people because they were, he knew they were important to me. Right. And he, there was such like a kindness and a softness to how he interacted with people that, you know, I, I think is, is awesome. And I'll, I'll always remember. And um, yeah, I don't know. Those are two, those are two in it, two, two things that I think embody, uh, embody each of them. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing those. They're, they're beautiful. And I didn't know your parents, but from what I've heard about them from you and seeing your posts on social media, they really seem like amazing people and gentle people. I really, really appreciate your time today, Luke. I know that you have thought a lot about your experience and the way that society handles this and that you've had ideas of your own about, um, you know, whether it's writing a book or just being open about this stuff and it's profound. And I, I know that you'll continue to, you'll continue to look for opportunities like that. Thank you so much for your time. And, you know, if, if there's anything else you'd like to share, feel free. Thanks for just, thanks for having me on and thanks for doing this. It's, it's super important to be having these conversations and, you know, I always, I appreciate your questions and being prompted is always a nice, a nice way to be to, to be not forced to reflect, but to create an opportunity to reflect. And those are, those are fun images of my parents that I probably wouldn't have thought of this morning. So thank you for, thanks for that.